So, as many of you know, um, this summer we adopted a rescue dog named Shasta. And we knew part of what we were getting into when we rescued this puppy. Um, we knew she was part German Shepherd. And then afterwards, we found out she's also part Great Dane. Woo! So we got this 80-pound puppy at home who's still growing. Still growing. And after all we've done for Shasta, after all we've done for her, welcoming her into our family, taking her to the dog park to play, building her a kennel the size of a small cabin in our basement, after all we've done for Shasta, how does she repay us? She leaves a path of devastation everywhere she goes. Everywhere she goes. She has destroyed dishes. She has destroyed one of our chairs. I think I told the story. She obliterated one of our fences, just ran through it like it didn't exist. She recently tore the insulation off our brand new central air unit. Really appreciate that. A few weeks ago, I got an object here for you. A few weeks ago, she came back with this section of our hose. (laughs) I don't even know how you do this, how you even find it under that snow and then rip it off. And then even more recently, she came back with this. I have no idea what this is, (laughs) but this looks really important. (laughs) This really important. That's our dog. That's our dog. And I bring all this up because last week we began digging into the book of Joel, the book of Joel. And as Joel opens, he opens with this vivid description of the aftermath, the aftermath of millions and millions and millions of mini Shastas just rolling in wave after wave after wave and destroying everything in their path. Joel is a profound book. It's only three chapters long. And in those three chapters, he draws from Malachi, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Nahum, Isaiah, Amos, and Exodus. It's a fascinating little book. It's a lot of poetry and the poetic language is equal parts powerful and puzzling. We're going to cover as much as we can of Joel in this series. We also want to point you to different resources, too. So on the bottom of your notes this week, we've got some great resources. If you'd like to dig deeper into Joel, then we're able to go here with our time together, but we'll go as far as we can. I want to start by doing a quick review of last week, if for those, because a lot of people were blizzarded in or up at camp. And so if you didn't have a chance to look online, let's do a quick review. Let's open our Bibles to Joel chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We're going to look at this aftermath. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home too, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. Um, you can pick them up each and every week at the back table and they're there for you to bring home. You don't have to bring them back. In fact, we'd love for you to take those Bibles home, excuse me, home with you. Well, last week, Pastor Jason did a great job of helping us unpack this account that we're going to look at here in a quick review, the aftermath of a day of reckoning that happened long, long ago. So here we go. We're going to look at verses in chapter one, two through four says this. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children. Let their children tell another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust. Well, what we're committed to doing in this 
series is we're going to go where Joel leads us. We're going we're gonna to follow that path. And where Joel leads us is down the path of reflecting deeply on our choices and the impact that they can have, not only on our lives, but on the lives of those around us. Our choices can have devastating effects, can't they? Devastating effects. Well, did any of you see um, the most recent 30 for 30, the one on Michael Vick? Anybody see that one yet? Okay, so ESPN has these 30 for 30s, they call them. They're these little mini movies where they'll feature an athlete's life or a key moment in sports, and they, they dive in documentary style. This one, it is riveting, absolutely riveting. The story of Michael Vick. Michael Vick was one of the most gifted athletes ever, ever. And his story is as compelling as they come. His mom gave birth to Michael when she was 17. And Michael grew up in a single-parent family in a really, really rough neighborhood. But man, this guy could play football. Did you ever see him play? Oh, he could play. He could play so well that the Atlanta Falcons selected Vic with the first overall pick out of all the players in the 2001 draft. He could play so well that Vic became the face, not only of the Falcons, but of the NFL. He could play so well, he was offered a $100 million contract. This guy could play. Well, very early on, people started warning him. They said, you got a shot at something here. You got a shot at something that very few, if ever, people are going to have a shot at. For your sake, for your family's sake, for the sake of the Falcons organization, for the sake of the NFL, for the sake of every kid who's going to look up to you, make good choices. Make wise choices. The coach is bringing him in, knowing he had some people around him that weren't pulling him in a good direction. They said, hey, we'll do the work for you. Let us bring in some of these great people in the Atlanta area. We'll bring in Hank Aaron. We'll bring in these, these people who marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We would love for you to get a chance to meet these people. Learn from them. And he said, no, no thanks. His coach uh, at the time at, uh, with the Falcons was uh, Dan, Dan Reeves. And Dan Reeves said, hey, come on into my office. I got a gift for you. And it was interesting in the documentary, listening to both of their accounts, they really matched up. Coach Reeves had this brand new set of golf clubs. And it wasn't about golf. It was about pick something good here, guy. You know, pick, pick something that you can invest yourself in that's going to help you, help you along. But Vic, cho- Vic chose a different path. Instead of learning from those who went before him, instead of surrounding himself with people who are committed to helping him become the best version of himself, he chose to surround himself with a bunch of knuckleheads. And he chose a lifestyle that put himself and it put his family and it put his teammates at risk. And when it came to golf, he's like, I already got a hobby. But he didn't tell the coaches about the hobby. And those of you who know the story, the hobby was dogfighting. In the culture that he grew up in, dogfighting was something that a whole lot of people did. And no one seemed to get in trouble for it. In fact, he can think of all kinds of situations where the police would just turn their head. But in this situation, when they saw what was going on at his place, and the FBI came and they started digging up these bodies of these dogs. They couldn't turn their head. And the nation was introduced to stories of dogs who had been drowned and dogs who had been hung. 
stories of, of dogs who had been pounded on the ground till their necks snapped. Story of one of the female dogs that they pulled all 42 of her teeth out so that she wouldn't bite the male dogs during breeding. Well, this case went to trial, and he was found guilty. He was sentenced to 23 months in prison. And this empire that he had built, it just came crashing down. As he was going into prison, he had a newborn, newborn baby girl, who for the first two years of her life wouldn't know her dad. And he also had a preschooler at the time, a preschool girl. And in the documentary, he recalls going to prison with his daughter in the car and the preschooler saying, Dad, where are we going? Can you imagine that? Daddy, where are we going? Vic went from having millions in the bank to huge debt. He went from being the face of the NFL to becoming one of the most hated men in America. And he describes his lowest point. He said, my lowest point was draft day 2008 when they drafted Ryan. Uh, Mike, was it Matt Ryan? Matt Ryan. And he, he realized, this is it. They're moving on. Football's moving on without me. And just when he thought it couldn't get any lower that same day, he found out his grandma, who had been very influential in his life, she was on life support. She was dying, and he couldn't be there for her. He couldn't be there to support his mom as they grieved. And looking back on the choices, here's where we're going with this, looking back on the choices that he made and the consequences that they brought, Vic said this. He said, I should have taken the clubs. I should have taken the clubs. And I hit stop right there. I'm like, I, how many of you can relate to that? You know, safe place, we're not going to have you turn and share your club story, but how many of you can say, there was some point in your life you should have taken the clubs. Just me, Jeff, and Angie. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> All right. How many of you can look back and say, I should have taken the clubs? Show of hands. All right. You know, and, and it's my hope that you guys have friends, you have family, you have a small church, you have a group where you can share some of these stories. Where you look back and, you know, you can be honest and say, I should have... I should have taken the clubs. I should have taken that other path that was offered to me instead of the one I did. Because I think we can learn from these stories, right? The time when you should have listened to those people who loved you enough to warn you about that relationship that you were in or that crowd you were hanging out with. When you should have listened to that friend who loved you enough to question the choices you were making. When you should have listened to that expert who said, do not give that device to that kid at that age. Or when you do, make sure you got guardrails around it. And those times, not just when we're listening to others, but when your conscience said, this is wrong. This is wrong. And you didn't listen. Everywhere, everywhere that the sun rises and sets on this planet, this part of the Michael Vick story is repeated day after day after day. Day after day after day, people are discovering sin, it's not this old-fashioned notion that keeps us from having fun and keeps us from feeling good. Day after day after day, people are discovering that sin is fun until it's not. And sin feels good until it doesn't. And one of the deepest forms of pain, I try to talk about this regularly, 
one of the deepest forms of pain that we can experience is that pain of regret. When we realize that the choice we made and the consequences that are a result for us and for others, it could have been avoided. It could have been avoided. There's a place to write this down in your notes. A day of reckoning is coming for everybody. And here's another one of those words, like sin, that isn't used much, reckoning. At ECC, we're not going to duck the hard stuff. In fact, the Bible warns us about just hanging out with people who tell you what you want to hear, right? We care too much for that. So you're going to hear us use words once in a while that sound really old-fashioned, like reckoning. What a great word. And what a foundational principle for life. How did it ever fall off the collective conscience of our culture? This concept of reckoning. The principle of reckoning works like the principle of the harvest. Ultimately, you reap what you sow. That's how life works. You can try to hide from it, but ultimately, someone's going to pay the price. The principle of reckoning is the reality that our past will eventually catch up with us. The principle of reckoning is the reality that will ultimately be held accountable for our actions. And in chapter 1, Joel does two things. One, he describes a day of reckoning that came in the history of Israel. And then number two, what he does, he says, as a result of what we see here, he calls people to repentance. So let's, we already talked about the day of reckoning. We already read that. Let's look quickly at that call to repentance. This is also in chapter 1, verse 14. He says this, and these are words that we've used so many times in our Ash Wednesday service. Here is the context for it. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out and cry out to the Lord. So that's chapter one. Chapter one. In chapter two, Joel also does two things. He announces a day of reckoning is coming and he calls people to repentance. Let's begin with the day of reckoning, moving on to our new content here, chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 1, we'll pause, and then we'll hit the rest of it. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And then what does he say? It is near. It is near. Chapter 2 opens with a dramatic image. Zion is the place of God's throne. It can refer to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem or the entire holy city. And it was understood to be the place of God's presence and the place of his protection. Well, this trumpet that Joel is referring to, it's a ram's horn. It's known as a shofar. It was used to call people to battle. And here's the twist monster twist. Usually you hear that shofar blowing and it's because you've got this enemy of God that's taken on God's people, right? Trumpet blows. Armies on the horizon. You know, and, and, and fortunately, this is the day of the Lord. So this should be a day to celebrate. We're going to have victory, right? Because the, the way they understood, the children of Israel understood this day of the Lord, this is going to be a day when God is going to right all the wrongs but it's the day of the Lord. Here comes this army who's in the wrong. Oh no. Now what? And this time, God's not sending little mini Shastas. You can just swat. This time it's an army. A 
I'm going to read all the way through verse 11 as he describes this army that is right on the horizon. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of generations, of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them it's a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them their appearance is like the appearance of horses like war horses they run as with the rumbling of chariots they leap from the top of mountains like the crackling of the flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle before them peoples are in anguish their faces grow pale like warriors they charge like soldiers they scale the wall they march each on his way they do not swerve from their paths they do not even jostle one another each marches in his path they burst through the weapons they are not halted they leap on the city they run on the walls they climb up into the houses they enter through the windows like a thief the earth quakes before them the heavens tremble the sun and the moon are darkened the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before whose army? His army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who execute his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord, it is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Here's the day that's coming. Did you catch the imagery here? This is an unstoppable force. Unstoppable. It's an army that was sent by God himself. The shofar blows. And so the soldiers assemble as they've been trained to do. And they get up on their walls because now they can defend themselves from this position of power and strength. <clears throat> walls don't even slow the army down. Did you catch that? doesn't even slow them down. The walls don't. The volleys of arrows don't even get them to break break ranks in the least. The massive army rolls over defenses like a tsunami over a speed bump. So here's the imagery. When the day comes, what kind of firewall do you got? That's going to stop that. There's nothing. You know, will the firewalls of lies or lawyers or excuses or helicopter parenting can any of that hold this thing back? Not the day of reckoning. And now what I want to do right now is I want to pause, and this is a really important pause. And I want to speak to a very common narrative, and it's one that I used to hold myself. Uh, but I, gotta, I want to speak to it. And that's the narrative that the, God, the, the, the Bible seems to present two different gods. The Old Testament God of wrath and justice, and the New Testament God of love and grace. It's a false narrative, isn't it? One of the things that helped me the most on this was that BibleProject.com that we, that we recommend. What I did last summer is I, I went through and I, I, they have these little videos. They have all kinds of great videos, but they have these little videos of each book of the Bible, six to eight minutes each. And I just started in Genesis and each morning at breakfast, I'd watch one or two. And one of the many things that struck me was how the God of the Old Testament he is good, and he's patient, and he's kind. 
And that comes through over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. You know what else comes through in the Old Testament? About us, humanity. We are relentless when it comes to our disobedience. We are relentless when it comes to our rebellion. We are relentless when it comes to God saying, here is a good way, and we keep choosing the other one. And God gives warning after warning. I mean, don't just take my word for this. Do the, do the homework yourself. Warning after warning after warning after warning after warning, and we don't listen. Until it's just time, and there needs to be a reckoning. If you want to deconstruct the narrative that the Old Testament presents a different God than the New Testament, give that a try. And then don't stop at the New Testament because what are you going to see in the New Testament? You're going to see a God who's good. You're going to see a God who's patient. You're going to see a God who's kind. And you're going to see a God who gives warning after warning after warning after warning after warning that there's a way that seems right, but it doesn't take you down the path you want. And there's this wide path that so many people are on. And ultimately that wide path leads to destruction. It's the same God. The same God who's patient and kind. And the same God who warns, if you just keep walking in disobedience, there's going to come a day of reckoning. Read the Gospels. They warn of a day of reckoning. Read the letters. They warn of a day of reckoning. Read Revelation. It warns of a day of reckoning that sounds an awful lot like this one in Joel. There's a place to write this in your notes. There's not just a day of reckoning that's coming. There's the day of reckoning that's coming. Every one of us, we're going to face a day, multiple days, many of us, of reckoning, where the consequences for our choices, we're confronted with them. Sometimes it's the smaller things, like bringing home a dog, you know? Sometimes it's a lot bigger, right? But we all face a day. Multiple days of reckoning. The Bible also speaks there's going to be the day when Jesus returns and he makes all things right. And on that day he makes things right, you don't want to be in the wrong, right? Which brings us to the therefore. Here's a therefore. There's a place to write this in your notes. The therefore is repent. For the kingdom of God is what? It's near. That's the message. And, and again, repent. There's another one of those words, old-fashioned words, a word that the people dismiss, a word that people will mock me for using until, until they get caught in their porn addiction and they say, if only I had stopped before my wife walked in, before my daughter walked in, before my boss caught me, if only... Until the lies and the compromises that got you to the top, they're exposed. And your house of cards comes crashing down. You know, they'll dismiss it until the day comes where you realize God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. But even as I say these things, I want to go where Joel goes. And where Joel goes with repentance it's an invitation. Can I get an amen to that? Repentance is an invitation. 
Look at these verses from the good and patient God of the Old Testament. This is what comes next. This is not, okay, then there's a space. Hey, live in this. Feel horrible about yourself because you're all terrible people. Right after verse 11, here's verse 12. This is an invitation. Look what he says. Yet even now, even now, the army is there. It's been hundreds of years. The army is there even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments. What he's saying is there is back in the day when you were mourning, one of the ways you'd show everybody that you were is you'd rip up your clothes. You just rip them up. Look how sad I am. He says, forget the, that outward. Is it real? Is it real? The Hebrew thinking behind heart. This was the center of it all. This is the center of thought. This is the center of faith. This is the center of will. This isn't about, do you just feel bad? Are you willing to say, I'm, I'm sorry for real. And I'm going to turn. It says, rend your hearts, not your clothes. God's not interested in empty religious expressions, but he honors. This is the invitation. He honors repentance with restoration. I'm going to just pick up where we left off. The God who is patient and kind. Look at this. He says, is this invitation? Return to the Lord your God. For he's what? Say it with me. He is gracious and what? He's merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. One of the fascinating things here is that he's quoting Exodus. He's quoting Exodus 34, 6. He's quoting words that God had already said to those rebellious people hundreds and hundreds of years earlier when they came out of slavery. God delivered them from slavery out of Egypt, and he brings them to this, out into the wilderness where he's going to now start them. You this chance, you guys, at a new life, and they build a golden cow. And they start worshiping it. And, and the same invitation is given to those people then. Joel continues, and he says, even now, after countless warnings for hundreds of years, God is willing to defeat these invaders. He's willing to restore the devastated land. He's willing to send his divine presence once again. But the time to repent is now. It's now. Because the day is what? Near. Verses 15 through 16. Blow the trumpet in Zion. The refrain echoes. Consecrate a fast. This sounded all like chapter one. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the brighter chamber. It's like blow the trumpet and get everybody in the room. Bring the kids. Interrupt the wedding. This is what matters most right now. Let's get things right because the time is near. So that's God speaking through Joel. You know who else sounded a lot like this? Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. These are some of Jesus' first words as an adult entering into ministry. He says what? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know? These are some of his first recorded words. He continued to talk like this all the way to the end. When he told that story about the son, the sinning son who went away, he said, while that sin was, that son was off doing that, twice in that same parable, he, he says he's dead right now. When he comes home, what? He was 
The son was once dead. He's now, what does it say? Alive. He's alive. In his teaching, again, you can look this up. Direct quote from Jesus, Luke 5.32. He explicitly said, I've come to call sinners to what? To repentance, he says. And like Joel, Jesus spoke of a day of reckoning for Jerusalem and for all of us. But Jesus didn't just leave us there saying, feel horrible, be scared. He said, I got a helper. It's good that I'm going. I've got a helper. I'm going to send you this helper. I'm doing everything, you guys. Here's an invitation. I'm going to send you a helper. The helper is going to come, the Holy Spirit. And when the helper came... And the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples at Pentecost. Guess what the disciple of Jesus named Peter, guess what he linked that event to? To Joel chapter 2. So you can look up this next part that I'm going to read, and you can look it up in two places in the Bible. You can just keep reading along here in Joel. It's in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. It's the same thing because Peter is quoting Joel. Here's the Acts version. But this is what was uttered. This, the Holy Spirit fallen right now. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants, on my female servants, in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. And they'll prophesy. And I'll show you wonders. In the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. That great, magnificent day. And here's the God of yesterday, today, and forever. As recorded in the Old Testament. As recorded, then quoted in the New. And it shall come to pass. Could you read this next part with me? that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is an invitation for all of us. Come to me. Be saved. After sharing this promise from the good and patient and kind God of the Old Testament and the New, Peter then told the crowd that was gathered, he told them about Jesus. Told them about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit convicted them that they needed to make some changes. And they said, what should we do? And Peter said these words. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, what did he say? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, repent and. It's so important. Repent and. You know? It's, it's more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's, it's then turning away from, turning towards the thing that you should turn towards. One of the things that the Michael Vick documentary did really, really well, and this wasn't written by Christians for Christians. I mean, this was just telling his story, but boy, he's parallels. One of the things that Michael Vick documentary did really well was to make it clear that there's a turning if you want to change. There's a turning. One of the people who helped Vic turn his life around was a crisis management expert named Judy Smith. She said this about turning things around. She said, it's not just an apology and then everything's okay. There's a path forward. There's a journey that Mike had to make. There was a road that he had to walk down. And that path that he chose resulted in such dramatic change that the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, who took a chance on Vic when he was released from prison, 
that owner of the Eagles said this about what he saw. He said, this was not a resurrection of a football player or a football career. This was the resurrection of what? A person. Now, is Michael Vick perfect? Is that my point? Nope. None of us are. None of us are. But what he would be is the first person to tell you that this version of himself, far better than the one before prison. Talk about a trade up. Listen to this. Michael Vick traded in hanging out with knuckleheads, smoking weed and abusing animals. That's what he gave up for a second chance to do what he was made to do for now a new $100 million contract with the Philadelphia Eagles. And after that, what he's doing right now, a career in broadcasting, he traded in this life that led him to prison for a new shot at freedom to be reconnected with his family and for an opportunity to make a positive difference in the lives of others. Does that sound like a trade-up to any of you? And this is where Blinding Flash, the obvious today, in fact, so new that I was writing this down right before the first service, it, it just hit me. Okay, so as a high schooler, that's when I personally converted to Christianity. And so I started reading my Bible and I started reading this Old Testament. And there was this phrase that I kept coming across that did not make any sense to me. And the phrase was, I love your law, O Lord. I'd come across that in the Old Testament. I'm like, what is this? I don't get this. I get Jesus, I appreciate you dying on the cross for my sins. I, I get God, I'm in awe of you creating this world. I love your rules. Nobody says that, right? Until you get some more life experience. Until you see the devastation that comes when we walk away from his good laws. Guys, this is an invitation. And here's a thought that came to me. I was, I was driving back from snow camp and I was thinking about these things and what are we going to, how do we take all this wonderful content of Joel and how do we communicate it in a way that is true and is life-giving? And then it hit me. Just a little bit of a change from what we told you. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. I'm not retracting that. But I also want to add this. And there's a place to write this down. Rejoice for the kingdom of God is near. Can I get an amen to that? Rejoice that there is a God who is patient and he's kind and he's and he's inviting us to a better way. He's inviting us into this new life. He's inviting us into the best now. And, and this was so fresh at camp because camp is a better way. Camp is a better way. Um, we take evaluations at different times when we're up there. And I forgot to do it with the middle schoolers, but I did with the, the, the preteeners. This is an actual one from them. And it's very reflective of what we get back from these evaluations. And we, we asked one of these questions. We said, what improvement would you make? What improvement would you make? You know what this fourth grader said? She said, make it longer. She said, make it longer. And then after that, on a scale of one to 10, how much you want to come back next year? 10 being high, 210,000%. Make it longer. Camp's going to be longer when the day comes. Camp's going to go into eternity. And the bathrooms won't smell bad. Can I get an amen for those who are up to camp? Yes, she goes, yes. Camp with good smelling bathrooms. And it's even better than that, you guys. 
because it was interesting after the first service, a, a guy came up to me and he said, yeah, you know, I, I love this, but you ever thought of changing two words? Rejoice for the kingdom of God is here, here. It's near, the day's coming, but it's here. We can enter into it now. We can start living with God as our king and being guided by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is here. Rejoice. Rejoice that there is a good and patient God who is inviting you to trade in sin and the devastation that follows for a second or third or fourth chance to be who you were created to be, for sin's chains to be broken in your life, for new freedom from a guilty conscience and the shame of past mistakes, for a new community of brothers and sisters who are going to cheer you on. Rejoice. Because the Holy Spirit wants to show us how we can experience more and more of the kingdom and less and less of the curse. Can I get an amen to that? Final thought. I'm pulling this one right from preteen camp session number four. If they were with us, they'd be able to fill in the blanks for us. It's not easy to follow Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? It's not easy to follow Jesus. But it's easier when you're part of a what? Team. It's not easy to follow Jesus, but it is easier if you're part of a team, before prison, Michael Vick surrounded himself with this crowd that was heading down a wrong path as the day of his release came near. And he says, I don't want to repeat this again. I don't want to be back here. I want to turn this life around. He says, I got to surround myself with some new people. And he started listening when people said, here are some influencers. You know who one of those was? Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy said, I'm going to meet with him in prison. And one of the interesting things in the documentary, Michael Vick, when this realization, he said he was going to do it. And then he did. It was really interesting for him to make that connection. So he had a person like Tony Dungy now who came in and encouraged him and, and helped him to prepare for this new life that could be a better life when he'd be released. He also had people like Donovan McNabb who was the then quarterback of the Eagles who said, I will advocate for you to come on our team. And then he mentored him and he coached him. He said, you know, your skills are off the charts. Let me teach you how to be a leader a leader. People like coach Andy Reid. That name sound familiar after the Super Bowl? He was the coach of the, of the, uh, the of Philadelphia back then, the Eagles. And one of the reasons he was willing to take a chance on Michael Vick because his own kids were really struggling. His own kids were really struggling. He said, everybody needs a second chance. This new team brought him to new places. <coughs> And isn't this what God invites us into? And if you don't have people in your life who are willing to meet with you in your prisons, if you don't have people in your life who are willing to help coach and mentor you, if you don't have people in life who are willing to be honest and transparent and say, let me tell you, I got stuff too. Come and join this mess that we call Emmanuel Covenant. We'll do everything we can to try to help you with those things. Send me an email, talk to Caitlin, come for prayer. This is what we do. Well, let me invite the worship band to come up. We're going to seal this time with this powerful song. And as we do, I want to give you a chance to respond right here, right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for seasons like Lent that are coming up where we take 40 plus days and we reflect deeply on your ways. And we align through the power of your spirit with that. But Father, we don't want to miss this opportunity right here, right now to come before you and to say,
Forgive us, Father, for we've sinned. We've sinned against heaven and we've sinned against you. We're not worthy to be called your sons, your daughters, but you extend this invitation to us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us to come to you. Father, we offer you our lives. We turn to you. And right here, right now, we ask that you would become Lord of our lives. That you would show us your way. That you help us to identify what our next steps are. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the courage to take them. Lord, we pray that you're going to help us to be the community that's an even upgraded version of the one that came around Michael Vick. Help us to be encouragers. Help us to be so slow to point fingers. Help us to be transparent. Help us to be honest. Help us to mentor, to coach. Help us to be humble and be coached and be mentored. Help us to experience the kingdom now as we anticipate the kingdom to come. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.